It is known as the day that changed the modern world. Evil terrorists attacked America cold-heartedly. 2,977 people were killed. 19 hijackers committed murder-suicide. Over 6,000 were injured. The Twin Towers fell. The Pentagon was hit. Heroes crashed one plane into a Pennsylvania field. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I remember it vividly. Some of you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when that happened. We answered with shock and awe, dropping fire on adversaries with calculated, retaliating precision. And I remember cheering as the bombs fell. The rally cry was, never forget, never forget. Our national fury wouldn't subside. A patriotic slogan turned personal vendetta for many, and it was a mindset on retribution. And we developed a certain ingrained hatred for the perpetrators. Whatever you think about it, whatever your perspective, I want you to apply that mindset to today. Whatever difficulty you may have with people or issues. And what you'll notice is that love is often absent. Love is an overused word and an underused choice. We find a way to justify thinly-veiled hatred. We say God loves his church, we love others, yet we do not show it. Love is on the chopping block today. Those that are supposedly beloved are routinely attacked and rejected and devalued. They're tackled by their own teammates. Friends become frenemies former defenders, faithless defectors, and love wears thin. These past 18 months have taken their toll. The love of many has grown cold. The church, in the world but not of it, has been severely tested by pandemic, mandates, social distance, lockdowns. For many, it became a battle between honoring God by obeying government versus civil disobedience in the face of overreach. And so instead of closeness and warmth and trust and faithfulness in the body of Christ, we had isolation, distrust, suspicion, and fear. Lots of fear. Anxiety has become the default position 
in many hearts. Many are living paralyzed by dread. And dare I say, unloved. Hoarding supplies and testing friendships, the COVID era became a breeding ground for a critical spirit, for divisive anger, for accusations, for unforgiveness. And they merely exacerbated our pre-existing conditions. Create a cesspool of unrepentant sinners and those that would fracture fellowship and trample on church unity, cripple Christians, because the love of many of the beloved became stunted. And the answers that you need are in First Thessalonians. It was providential. It was God's perfect timing that I was preaching Ecclesiastes when COVID hit. I chose to preach 1 Thessalonians because what I have observed in the body of Christ over the past 18 months. We need the message of 1 Thessalonians and specifically the first three verses of this letter because it shows us what a beloved church looks like. Picture a beloved church. What, what does it mean to be loved and chosen and changed by God in the gospel? And what does it mean to, to love the family that God adopted you into? And how is this kind of love and acceptance even possible? First Thessalonians. It, it's about being loved by God and loving Christ's family as we await his return. How God's beloved become beloved to one another. How our love increases and abounds. Many claim that 1 Thessalonians is about the return of Christ. It is about the beloved becoming beloved with urgency in light of the return of Christ. Where you worship God, where you build up the body of Christ, where you reach the nations with the gospel what was going on in the first century the first century church in the world but not of it but under rome's iron fist and at the same time objects objects of god's sovereign grace and covenantal love while they were under that iron fist paul had taken the missionary trip to what is southern turkey and was on a second and he was going to visit the churches that had been started previously. And then he was going to travel to what is now known as northern Turkey. But before going north, he receives this vision from God of a man saying, Come over here to Macedonia and help us. He gets this call from God to preach the gospel in Macedonia, in Greece. History changed. The gospel went from Asia to Europe for the first time. On the second missionary journey, Paul had separated from Barnabas and chose Silas and, and went. And he picks up Timothy at Lystra for the rest of the journey. 
It's interesting to note he was only in Thessalonica for a, a short while, maybe a few weeks, maybe months, but then he's run out of town. And it was the most successful ministry to that point. To appreciate the importance of Thessalonica to the Roman Empire and the strategic role in the spread of the gospel, you must appreciate where it was. You know how they say location, location, location? The location of Thessalonica is ideal. It was the capital city of Macedonia, the largest city. Cassander, the king of Macedonia, had founded Thessalonica in 316 BC. He had taken 26 villages and joined them into one city. It was the, the same spot where the ancient Thermi was there was. It was named after its hot springs. But he renamed the town in honor of his wife, a daughter of Philip II, the king of Macedon, and a half-sister of Alexander the Great. It was a port city. It served all of Macedonia. It was prosperous. It was powerful. It had rivers and ro roads and rolling hills and, and, and the ocean right there. This is the L.A. or the, or the New York City of its day. In fact, modern-day Thessaloniki, Greece, is, is known as the cultural capital. Thessalonica's land and sea and road and port combos facilitated commerce between Macedonia and the empire. It was a very strategic advantage. And it was a strategic place for the gospel. The existence of a church in, in this civic center was due to gospel preachers guided by Christ. There was a road, the Via Ignatia. It was built in 146 to 120 B.C. And it was built to cement Rome's hold on the empire, its control in that part of the world. And there was a lot of foot traffic on that road. There were people and horses and mules and carts. They had access to the ocean and the empire. And a hundred years later, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke traveled that road. They were traveling next to Roman soldiers and Roman officials and traders and philosophers and pilgrims. They go from the port city of Neapolis to Philippi. And then, minus Luke, they leave Philippi. They go through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica. Paul and Silas and Timothy had been at Philippi. They left after Paul and Silas had been thrown in jail. They go to Thessalonica, and Paul goes to the synagogue. This is his practice. Acts 17, 2 tells us he preached in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. And the results were supernatural. Acts 17, 4 says some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now the Jews did not appreciate losing a good number of their population, especially those who were wealthy, and so they became violent. And they attacked the home of Jason, who was Paul's host. So Paul and Silas leave for Berea. The Jews follow them. They stir up opposition. Paul leaves there, goes to Athens, goes to Corinth. What is he doing in all of these places? He's preaching the gospel. Acts 18.5 tells us, Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, and Paul is occupied with the word. He's testifying that the Christ was Jesus. He's taking the Old Testament scriptures and laying out clearly that Jesus is the promised Messiah. While he's at Corinth, messengers come and report regarding the Thessalonian church, how good it's going for them. 
how well they're doing, how they're growing in their faith. And Paul is reassured about them and writes this first letter to them around A.D. 51. He wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants to reassure them of God's love. He, he wants to spur them on to, to keep loving one another as they anticipated Christ's return. And there was an urgency to this letter. It's one of Paul's earliest. It's heartfelt. It's biographical. He gives us a picture of a beloved church. A beloved church. Three realities of a beloved church in these first three verses. A beloved church is changed by the gospel. A beloved church is connected in relationships. And a beloved church is committed to ministry. Changed by the gospel, connected in relationship, and committed to ministry. A beloved church is changed. Changed by God in the gospel. Verse 1 begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. A common way that you would start a letter. And they write to the church of the Thessalonians. Real people. Writing to a real church. In a real city. And there's no mention of Paul's apostleship. Everyone in Thessalonica believed it. He didn't have to defend it. And he writes humbly, Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy. To the church in this place. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means assembly. The word was used in many religious and secular ways. Well, what was distinctive about this assembly? What was distinctive about this ecclesia? Verse 1 tells us, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The difference of this assembly, the difference of any Christian assembly, is that it is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could even add, through the Spirit of God. That our life is hidden with Christ in God. That we live in relationship to God. We are rooted in Christ. We draw our life from God. Paul is reminding a church that was tempted in the middle of trials to feel insecure. And he tells this church, your security is in God. God the Father and Son through the Spirit, the source of your life, the source of your security, the source of your strength, is God Almighty. The church was chosen by God in union with Him, alive. Their deeds were done in Him. Their salvation was anchored in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have this vital union with God that enables their shared common life. This is why they can do the one another's. This is why they can love one another. This is why they can forgive one another. This is why they can bear one another's burdens. And God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And John put it this way, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, in verse 1, they give a greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace signifying their standing with God. Peace signifying their relationship 
with God. By God's sovereign grace, by his covenantal love, they have been chosen before the foundation of the world and now changed by the gospel. There's similar greetings in Romans and in Ephesians. Written to those loved by God and called by the gospel. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They write to the church in Thessalonica that is in God. It's been said that every church has two homes, two residences. The church lives in God and the church lives in the world. It's like in Christ at Orange. That's us. The strength that we have as we live in this world that God governs is found in Christ. The church is a company of believers who know they belong to God. They've been chosen. They've been changed by the gospel. They worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're united by faith. They share new life. It's the idea. It's like a picture of being wrapped up in God, enveloped in God, cocooned in the love of God, kept in the strong, almighty God. Unbelievers will say, well, a God that controls the world is a tyrant. Believers know that the God who controls the world is sovereign and he is love and that the world is out of control without him. This is his love, his agape love is, is not God giving you everything you want or everything working out the way you want it or letting you call the shots. It is him determining to save and sanctify as he wills in his time. For his glory. The response would be to just yield 100% to the sovereign God who chooses his church. Who, who, if you're a believer today, he chose you. He loves you. He changed you by the gospel. And, and he's the one that holds all things together by the word of his power. All things. That you need to know today that you are beloved of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in him alone, not, a, not, with, not your works with your, your stack of good things that you think you've done, but you know you're under the wrath of God because of your sins and you know that Jesus is the only way to be saved and there is no other name given among anyone by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ that you yield 100% to the sovereign God who chose you and loves you and changes you. And that you know that you're beloved, that you know that you're chosen, that you know that you're changed. That you believe the message of the cross, that you, you, you received it. The gospel message was sent, just like it was sent to Thessalonica. And, and it was preached, and, and you, you received it, you believe it. You, you're now under the rule and reign of Christ, you're under the lordship of Christ. And you're dependent on him. Are you in Christ today? Are you in Christ? If so, your life has been reoriented. Because God changes hearts. We don't change people's hearts. You give the gospel message and God changes hearts. The gospel transforms. God transforms by the gospel. What did he do for the Thessalonians? He, he took them and called them out of the legalism of Judaism, out of the emptiness of idol worship, out of the dead-end bankruptcy of religious ritual 
They can do the same for you in your life, just like they did. They turned to God from idols. They repented of their sins. Their position was changed. They can stand before God without shame. Every believer, your position has changed. You're, you, you have grace from God because of his sovereign goodness, and you're, you have peace with God. You have a, a relationship with God now. An influential first century message infiltrated an influential first century city. It does the same today. That's why the psalmist records God saying this, be still and know that I am God. Relax. Let go of your control. Because God says, I am God and I will be exalted among the nations. I, I will be exalted in the earth. Because the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And he is going to save and sanctify as he wills, as he wishes. A, a beloved church is changed by the gospel. Humbly united. and Moved to take the gospel to a place like Thessalonica. Moved to take the gospel to California. Moved to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Changed by the gospel. That's the first reality we see here. The second reality is this. That a beloved church is connected in relationships with God and one another. Like dependently grateful to God. And in verse 2 it says this. We give thanks to God. It's a continually giving of thanks. We give thanks to God always for you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. You find similar words in Romans and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 Corinthians and Philemon. It's this idea of a constant remembrance of believers of what God has done and what he is doing. It is specific. It is directing the memory to fellow believers and praying to God for them and you do so in constant fashion unceasingly uninterrupted so when we get to chapter 5 verse 17 and you read pray without ceasing but you realize it is anchored in your standing in god and your relationship to other believers paul told timothy i remember you constantly in my prayers night and day I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And it first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and it's in you. He knew them. He, he remembered that, and he prayed for them. What did he say? Night and day. A love so deep that your memory is ingrained and your choice to love continues. That's the best rut to be in ever. A love so deep that it ingrained in your memory that you have been loved by God because of his sovereign grace, and so you will choose to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you will have a relational connection with God and others, that you will, that you will pray for fellow believers, that you will relate with fellow believers, that you will get to know other believers, that you will disclose yourself to other believers, that you will share your life as 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 they said in chapter 2, that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. That's the same word from agape, beloved. Beloved believers. 
In the 1600s, John Owen wrote a book that I've been digesting recently called Evangelical Love, Church, Peace, and Unity. And he wrote it at a time where he realized it was necessary for him to speak of a sinful decay of love among believers that he was noticing. And how it is so important to have love permeating through all areas of church life. And Owen, back then, believed that the church needed more love. And without it, more arguments and schisms would arise and their unity would dissolve. And he said it was almost impossible to overcome because neither side was willing to give up its pride. That's what keeps you from loving others in the body of Christ. This sinful pride. You're holding on to things that you shouldn't be holding on to. Your relationships are imperfect. If you're a believer, you're being progressively sanctified. But there are many variables at play. But the sovereign God holds it all together. If we were in charge of holding it together, it would be destroyed. It would be demolished. It would be ruined. What you need is a humble network, not prideful, a humble network of people who are your support, literally your, your safety net in life. Later on, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul recalls, you know, Timothy came to us from you, Thessalonians, and brought us good news of your faith and love and the fact that you always remember us. This wasn't one way. They were praying for each other. This is what Christians do. Where there's no artificial reality, there's no fake fun, that the world can try to drum up, and then two seconds later, it's emptiness. No, it's where you do life with real people in a real church, in a real city. We pray to God for and with one another, where you share life with one another, where you become very dear to one another and become more and more beloved. For some of you, this is your experience in the body of Christ. For others of you, you've never known this kind of love. And before you start saying, yeah, because no one's ever shown it to me, you can finish that sentence. A beloved church is changed by the gospel, humbly united in Christ by God's sovereign grace and his covenantal love. But it's also connected in relationships where this overflowing gratitude to God and you're no, you know believers and, and they know you and you're in the same assembly and your love is growing for each other even when things aren't perfect because none of us are perfect. These are the realities of a beloved church. Let me point one more out to you in verse 3. Beloved church is also committed to ministry, serving Christ. A transformed community that is radically serving, that is shaped by the word, not the world. Verse 3 says this, remembering. So again, this, this constant remembrance before our God and Father, in the presence of God, your work of faith, your labor of love, 
and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They're calling to mind, they're making mention of, and this is emphatic, the idea of remembering. It should be put in front of each of these things. You add it to each of them. Remembering your work of faith, remembering your labor of love, remembering your steadfastness of hope in Christ. The church is a community distinguished by faith, hope, and love. That the change God brought about in their lives showed itself. It was evident, it was even startling and counterintuitive and supernatural in a sinful place like Thessalonica, Thessalonica, just like it is where you and I live. When Christians do supernatural things and actually love each other in the body of Christ. Well, there's, there's ministry, there's service, which is not something you just do. Some of you are like, well, I have a ministry, and you, I'm going to do it, you know, and you're complaining about it. That's not what we're talking about here. This is not something you just do. This is what God does through you. This is a, a, the outflow of the life of Christ in you. This is the outflow of life change because of the gospel. This is even a picture of your connections in, the, in relationship in the body of Christ. The, 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 the service flows. He speaks of their work of faith. It's, it's literally their work produced by faith. Active work due to living faith. It's the results, work results of activity. And, and this is speaking of the entire Christian life that is ruled and energized by faith. It's, it's the effect of faith in your life as a believer, and it's the effect of faith on your character. This is not just saying, oh, I believe in Jesus and, and living in ways that, that actually look like you don't. Jesus was asked a question in John 6. What must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, the work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in me. In Romans, you see bookends in Romans, and it's all about the obedience of the faith. The, 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 right, the word of God was given to all nations by the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, that you would, that you would live in obedience to God. This is why James says, faith without works is dead. If you say you have the root of faith and there's no fruit, there's no proof, then you don't. There was once a Scotsman that had a job rowing people across a river. And on one of his oars, he carved the word faith. And on the other oar, he carved the word works. And he would just row people, you know, all day long across the river and back. And people would ask him, why do you have faith written on one and works on the other? And he said, well, let me show you. And he would just take one of the oars and just row, and they would just go in a circle. And he was just trying to demonstrate, you know, faith without works is dead. The true faith influences your heart to obey God and serve others. The lives of the Thessalonians in serving Jesus demonstrated their faith. He speaks of their labor of love, labor promoted by love. The idea here, this labor, is, is work that makes you so tired. 
where you sweat and you're fatigued. This is like you chopping down a tree on a sweltering day. I've done that before. You're straining all your energy to the utmost. This is a picture of the toilsome effort that love will willingly exert to serve others for Christ. Not, you know, keeping score and saying, well, I did this for you, you need to do this for me. Paul told the Galatians what matters. What's, what's of utmost importance is faith expressing itself through love. Paul told the Corinthians, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He told the Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Though they were demonstrating their love for God, and their neighbors by practical acts of service. This is why John said, let us not love in word alone, but in deed and truth. Now, it's become very popular to, to curse the darkness, the privacy of our own homes as we you know, drop fire on people on social media or what have you. Curse the darkness out on the plaza and Tell fellow believers how bad the world is. Cursing the darkness with talking points about all the evils of society plays to the home team that already agrees with you. It fosters pride. It fosters an unloving attitude. You just need to repent, be a doer of the word. On the other side of that, it's become very popular for Christians, professing Christians, to cave into social pressure. So if you cave into social pressure and, and, and don't respond to the evils of society, you're playing to the wrong team who's, that's deceiving many. That fosters sinful compromise on biblical convictions. You need to repent of that and, and get back to the word. It's been, become very popular for Christians to just continually virtue signal on, on far left and far right, <laughs> professing Christians Continuing to virtue signal is antithetical to the truth of the gospel of the grace of God and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. If you're on God's team, you, you need to love God and love your neighbor. And if you're not doing that, repent and obey the word of God. Like, is, is your heart filled with love for Christ such that you just want to sacrificially serve him in the outflow? He also speaks of a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this heroic perseverance, this confident expectation of future good because of the grace of God in Christ, that you're fixed on Christ and his personal, visible, bodily, promised, imminent return. And you don't have just, you don't have just some vague expectation that it might happen. But you have a solid confidence based upon the word of God because God has promised it and you anticipate Christ's second coming. So what you do is you live today longing for tomorrow, for that day. You, you do what you are called to do today and you have an endurance that is prompted by hope in Christ. And then you're able to bear up under pretty much any difficulty in life because you know that everything that you face in life is leading you to glory.
Paul told the Romans, in hope we, we were saved. And if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He told the Romans, may, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. James said, be patient until the coming of the Lord. See, the Thessalonians had, had a foundational hope in eternal life and the glory that goes with it so they were able to be patient in hardship. This hope that operates in God's presence, it's this hope of final victory, this, this hope based on the promise of Christ's return. It helps you persevere. It helps you keep going. You, you need a firm resolve to serve Jesus with gladness no matter what, or else this life is going to be one long, lonely, self-serving valley of dry bones experience for you. You need to just say, I'm going to serve God in any way possible, whatever, whatever I can find, and, and I realize that not, not everything is going to turn out the way I want. But I'm going to serve God, I'm going to work, I'm going to labor, I'm going to endure with faith, hope, and love. And I'm going to trust God with the outcome. Trust God with the outcome. He is the sovereign one. He's with you. you. You exist for his glory. I mean, so many today are marked not by love, but by fear, by anxiety, by doubt. So many today are marked not by faith, but by critical spirit, by mistrust, by unforgiveness, by suspicion of fellow believers. Some of you today are marked not by hope, but by dread. Like an under, it's a shadow of shame and almost wanting to just give up. And here's Paul and his friends recognizing these three most important Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. It was the first time in Paul's letters that they show up. He elaborates on them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Faith, hope, love, abide. But the greatest of these is love. These are all, by the way, ongoing things. This is faith in God. This is love to others. This is hope for the future. And they're all evidence of regeneration, of new life in Christ. The, the new birth, when Jesus saves you, he lifts you out of the miry pit of sinful self-centeredness so you can love him and your fellow humans. They're productive. There's concrete results. Their faith leads to works. Love leads to labor. Hope endures in light of the return of Christ, looks for Christ to return. And Paul and his friends reminding each other of what they see, these virtues that show these are fellow believers. As one person put it, in faith, hope, and love, the entire of Christianity consists. I mean, every Christian hopes and loves and believes. These are not passive hidden virtues. These show themselves out in your life where you would be you know, committed to serving Christ, committed to, to a life of ministry where, where, where there's no fanfare to it. You're not blowing trumpets all the time showing everyone, but it's just the outflow of the life of Christ in you, an outlet for his love. 
And we need this, these, these realities. We, we need this badly. These are perilous times. Love is on the chopping block. Christian identity has become clouded and confused and fuzzy even in the last 18 months. Again, exacerbating pre-existing conditions in many believers. And what, what has happened? Many have adopted such an unloving default stand. They forget the choice to love. They forgot it, like that you know, important email that just got lost in the junk file. And a certain loneliness just creeps in on you. And it's not good. You're just like a valley of dry bones. But I'm actually really enthused. I'm enthused about this idea of those beloved of God becoming more and more beloved to one another. That how God's sovereign choice of us gives us the ability to choose to love one another even when it isn't easy. And it's going to show in the life change. It's going to show in our connection in our relationships. It's going to show in our commitment to ministry in a local church. And it's all built on the day that changed the world forever. When Christ died at the cross, on the cross. As God told Abraham, look up at the stars. If you can even count them, you can't. So shall your descendants be. So those of faith, chosen by God, changed by the gospel, elect before the foundation of the world, that shapes a beloved church. You're chosen, you're changed by the gospel, you are committed in relationship, you are in service of Christ. And what you realize, do you realize this? This church, the existence of this local assembly is a gift from God that we even exist. I mean, here's your opportunity, beloved. Like, seize the moment, seize the day, and understand God's love for you in Christ. God intends for you to be more and more beloved to one another. And there, there's an urgency to it as, as we await Christ's return, that we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, that we proclaim the victory of Christ over sin and death and hell. That we, that we pray to God to grant repentance because he's the one that opens hearts to the gospel. He's the one that showers people with grace and peace. And that we would, we would resolve, we're not going to budge on the gospel. And we're not going to budge on the love of God. And we're not going to budge on loving the church that Christ purchased with his blood. That, that we're, we're saved from the wrath to come well, now we're free to urgently love our beloved in Christ. John Owen speaks of the, the love of God that makes it even possible for us to love him and one another. He says, how many millions of sins in every one of the elect, every one of which is enough to condemn them all, has this love overcome? What mountains of unbelief does this love remove? Look upon the conduct of any believer. Consider the frame of their heart. See the many stains and spots, the defilements and infirmities with which their life is contaminated. 
And tell me whether this love of God that bears with all is not to be admired. He said, is this not the same love showed toward thousands every day? What streams of grace, purging, pardoning, quickening, assisting, do flow from this love every day? This is our beloved. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are our beloved and we are yours in Christ. May we know with assurance that we are been changed and are being changed by the gospel. May we connect deeply with you and others and may we serve you with every ounce of our being as you give us strength. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.